Would you turn with me to 1 Samuel chapter 15? The New Testament tells us that the Old Testament was given to us for our instruction. Romans 15 says it this way, For whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction, that through endurance and through the encouragement of Scripture we might have hope. So these stories in the Old Testament were written for our instruction. I'm asking God this morning to take what was written in the former days, a story from 1 Samuel 15, and do just that. Use it for our instruction. The story in 1 Samuel 15, if I were going to title this chapter or title my message this morning, it would be the king who turned back. The king who turned back. If you look at 1 Samuel 15, verse 11, you'll see why I would call it that. The Lord said in verse 11, I regret that I have made Saul king, for he has turned back from following me. I would hope God would take 1 Samuel 15 this morning, one of those stories that he's given for our instruction, and give us some, um, some warnings for ourselves about not turning back. If Saul, the king of Israel, was capable of following God and then following him no more, turning back and no longer following the Lord, that is something that could slip into any of our lives, where we're not following as close as we once were to the Lord. So it's the king who turned back. Let me set the stage for chapter 15, and then we're actually going to read it. Samuel is God's leading prophet in Israel. He has been the prophet in Israel for decades. Samuel's the prophet, Saul is the king. He's Israel's first king. And then there's finally a group of people in Psalm 15 called the Amalekites. They're a group of people, a nation that lives close to the Israelites, but they have been their enemy for some time. In fact, and we won't go back and look at it, but when Israel was leaving Egypt and headed for the Promised Land, the Amalekites attacked them from the rear. Deuteronomy 25 says that the Amalekites attacked those who were in the back, the stragglers, those who were weak and faint and weary, probably the women and children and some of the men maybe who were elderly and couldn't keep up as well with the caravan leaving Egypt and headed to where God was taking them. And the Amalekites slipped up, according to Deuteronomy 25, and attacked them from the rear. God promised then, although it had been many years, that they would pay for that. And in 1 Samuel 15, that bill is going to come due. So I'm going to ask you to read this with me, and we're going to pray that God in his great grace would take this and use it for our instruction. Verse 1. Samuel said to Saul, The Lord has sent me to anoint you king over his people. Now therefore listen to the words of the Lord. Thus says the Lord of hosts, I have noted what Amalek did to Israel in opposing them on the way when they came out of Egypt. 
Now go and strike Amalek and devote to destruction all that they have. Do not spare them, but kill both man and woman, child and infant, ox and sheep, camel and donkey. So Saul summoned the people and numbered them at Telaim, 200,000 men on foot and 10,000 men of Judah. And Saul came to the city of Amalek and lay in wait in the valley. Then Saul said to the Kenites, Go depart, go down from among the Amalekites, lest I destroy you with them. For you showed kindness to all the people of Israel when they came up out of Egypt. So the Kenites departed from among the Amalekites. And Saul defeated the Amalekites from Havilah as far as Shur, which is east of Egypt. And he took Agag, the king of the Amalekites, alive and devoted to destruction all the people with the edge of the sword. But Saul and the people spared Agag and the best of the sheep and the best of the oxen and the fatted calves and the lambs and all that was good. And they would not utterly destroy them, but what was despised and worthless they devoted to destruction. The word of the Lord came to Samuel, I regret that I have made Saul king, for he has turned back from following me and has not performed my commandments. And Samuel was angry, and he cried to the Lord all night. And Samuel rose early to meet Saul in the morning. And it was told Samuel, Saul came to Carmel, and behold, he set up a monument for himself and turned and passed on and went down to Gilgal. And Samuel came to Saul, and Saul said to him, Blessed be you to the Lord. I have performed the commandments of the Lord. And Samuel said, What then is the bleeding of the sheep that is in my ears and the lowing of the oxen that I hear? And Saul said, They have brought them from the Amalekites, for the people spared the best of the sheep and the oxen to sacrifice to the Lord your God, and the rest we have devoted to destruction. Then Samuel said to Saul, Stop. I will tell you what the Lord said to me this night. And he said to him, Speak. And Samuel said, Though you are little in your own eyes, and you are not the head of the tribe of Israel, the Lord anointed you king over Israel. And the Lord sent you on a mission and said, Go devote to destruction the sinners, the Amalekites, and fight against them until they are consumed. Why then did you not obey the voice of the Lord? Why did you pounce on the spoils and do what was evil in the sight of the Lord? And Saul said to Samuel, I have obeyed the voice of the Lord. I have gone on the mission on which the Lord sent me. I have brought Agag, the king of Amalek, and I have devoted the Amalekites to destruction. But the people took of the spoil, the sheep and the oxen, and the best of the things devoted to destruction, to sacrifice to the Lord your God at Gilgal. And Samuel said, Has the Lord delighted in burnt offerings and sacrifices, as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to better it's better to obey than to sacrifice and to listen than the fat of rams. For rebellion is as the sin of divination, and presumption is as iniquity and idolatry. Because you have rejected the word of the Lord, he has rejected you from being king. Saul said to Samuel, I have sinned, and I have transgressed the commandment of the Lord and your words, because I feared the people and obeyed their voice. 
Now, therefore, please pardon my sin and return with me that I may bow before the Lord. And Samuel said to Saul, I will not return with you, for you have rejected the word of the Lord, and the Lord has rejected you from being king over Israel. As Samuel turned to go away, Saul seized the skirt of his robe, and it tore. And Samuel said to him, The Lord has torn the kingdom of Israel from you this day and has given it to a neighbor of yours who is better than you. And also the glory of Israel will not lie or have regret, for he is not a man that he should have regrets. Then he said, I have sinned, yet honor me now before the elders of my people and before Israel, and return with me that I may bow before the Lord your God. So Samuel turned back after Saul, and Saul bowed before the Lord. And Samuel said, Bring here to me Agag, the king of the Amalekites. And Agag came to him cheerfully. Agag said, Surely the bitterness of death is past. And Samuel said, As your sword has made women childless, so shall your mother be childless among women. And Samuel hacked Agag to pieces before the Lord at Gilgal. Then Samuel went to Ramah, and Saul went up to his house at Gibeah. And Samuel did not see Saul again for the rest of his days until his death. But Samuel grieved over Saul, and the Lord regretted that he had made Saul king over Israel. It's the king who turned back. How did he get there? How did the man chosen to be the first king over Israel get to the place where verse 11 could say he turned his back on the Lord and no longer kept his commandments? Let me highlight this morning, because I think it's still how we do it. Let me highlight a couple of steps and how you end up becoming the king who turned back. First, Saul elevated himself. Saul elevated himself. If you look at verse 12 again, after this great military victory, he set up a monument for himself. Who does that? I have just crushed the Amalekites. I, I am the warrior king. And I should have a monument set up for myself so that everybody knows what I've done. If God gave the victory, no man needs a monument, right? I mean, who gets the credit here? Saul comes back from this amazing victory and is like, I've got to make sure everybody in this generation knows and after I'm gone, the monument will still be there. The next generation needs to know. If God brought the victory, no man needs a monument unless you're celebrating your own importance. I, when I read this story, I sometimes think about an older pastor that I knew years ago, faithful, faithful shepherd. He faithfully served the same church for years. And toward the end of his life, the church came to him and said, we, we would like to honor you and your I mean, years and years of faithful service here and loving us and preaching to us and marrying our kids and doing our funerals and all that you've done. And um, we'd like to have a special service where we, we'd like to rename the Fellowship Hall. It was a very large church and, and put your name on it. it. It would be the the John Brown Memorial Fellowship Hall. And he said, don't put my name on anything. 
Don't put my name on anything. I don't want my name on a building. I don't want my name on a room. I don't need any monuments for me. And he said, I realize after I die, you guys can do what you want. But I'm, I might come back if you put my name on anything. Because this is never about me. If God built this church, no man needs a monument. If God brought the victory, no man needs a monument. Church, I think sometimes the first step in us turning back is this elevated view of ourselves. Saul's decided he's so important that he needs a monument in Carmel. We think we're important, and we begin to think too much about what other people think of us. This shows up again on how important he thinks he is and how he has to impress everybody else. In verse 26, he begs Samuel to go back with him. And Samuel says, I'm not going back with you. God's abandoned you as king. You're not going to be king anymore. So as the prophet, I'm not going to be at your side anymore. And in verse 30, Saul, in trying to convince Samuel to go back, he says, I need you to go with me and honor me before the elders of Israel. Verse 30. I need you at my side so that the elders, the leaders in Israel, will give me the honor I deserve. Saul has just told him, you've lost the throne. You've lost the crown. But if Samuel refuses to return with him, then the people may realize he's been rejected as king. And Saul can't have that. God may have rejected me, the people can't know it. So Samuel, I need you to go back and worship with me so nobody knows what's happened from heaven. The people can't know God's rejected me. He desperately wants the people's honor even if he no longer deserves it. That's somebody who has this elevated view of themselves. I need monuments and I need honor even if it's fake. I actually think the reason he didn't kill Agag, the king of the Amalekites, was because of this. God says, I want you to destroy all of them, including the king. And as the battle raged on, they captured the king, and rather than kill him, Saul brings him back. Why would you do that? And I, I'm, I'm assuming here, okay, the Bible doesn't tell us, but I'm trying to think through why would King Saul not want to kill King Agag, but instead bring him back? It's the glory of bringing back the enemy king that you've just conquered. He's a trophy. I mean, I could kill him on the battlefield, but what if I bring him back and can put him on display to all the people as a visible reminder of what I did out there? This king that used to be a threat to us, he's now my servant. I lead him around. I parade him around. He's a trophy for me to show to you, God's people, what an amazing king you have, because look at their king. I brought him back. Do you know what an elevated view of yourself is? Let me just tell you. It's idolatry. It's idolatry. God, I know you said what we're supposed to do. But occasionally, I think I have the right to overrule you. 
I occasionally have the right to overrule you. You said destroy them all. I have another plan. When God gets replaced by another little g God, it's idolatry, even if you're the little g God. Conscious disobedience is always idolatry. It's idolatry in my life. When I know what he said, I know what the king wants, and I'm not going to do it because I think I have a better plan. You said, God, in verse 3, to kill all the livestock. But as Saul looks them over, some of these animals are amazing. I mean, they're, they're best in show animals. So, verse 9 says, they killed the despised and worthless ones, but they kept the amazing ones. Who gets to make that call? Who gets to veto what God said and then do their plan? You have to have an elevated view of yourself to pull that off. One of the first steps in turning back away from the Lord is to decide your opinion is as valuable as his or at times more valuable. You replace his judgments with your judgments. And all of us in this room have done it, right? I mean, we can come down hard on Saul because his story got told. Chapter 15 could have been about a chapter in Doug's life or yours, right? I mean, let's, this is how it happens in our life. You may not be as bold to say, I need a monument, but it's just as real whenever we say, I'm going to replace what you said with what I said. exactly what Samuel said in verse 23. When I connect this to idolatry, it's because of what Samuel himself said. Look at verse 23. Saul, your rebellion is like the sin of divination. You might as well practice witchcraft. And your presumption is like idolatry. Verse 23. You may not realize it, Saul, but what you're doing is idolatry. You have such an elevated view of yourself that you have risen to the point of you're an idol in your own life. Church, our lives should be marked by humility, meekness, dependence on God, servant-heartedness, and this belief that God knows best. Our lives should not be marked by monuments, parading defeated kings around that God said to kill, having undeserved honor that the elders have to honor us even though I no longer deserve it, and replacing God's judgments with our own. Pride really is our chief enemy. It is our chief enemy. And Saul moves into this mess by believing he's more than he is. And I recognize many of us aren't so bold as to say it out loud, but the choices we make in life betrays the fact that we think we're really something. God, slaughtering these incredible animals would be a waste. Did you think about what a waste this would be? And just killing the king on the battlefield, it'd be so much more glorious to bring him back and let all of Israel see him. God's like, that's not what I said. Don't give me your logic. Don't question me. I said slaughter. I said slaughter. If you think it's a waste, then waste them. Waste them all. 
because that's what I said to do. But God, I, I, don't, I don't think you've thought this all the way through. Can you imagine having this argument with God? And most of us have gotten so used to just overruling God at times in our life, we don't have the argument in our mind, God, you're wrong on this one. There's some things you didn't consider. Saul had an elevated view of himself that is part of what led to verse 11. He turned his back on God. Number two, second thing that leads us to being the king who turned back is that Saul covered up his sin. Saul had an elevated view of himself, but then Saul covered up his sin. These are, these are very simple. But I, I just want you to see them again in the passage. Look, look at verse 13, how this plays out. Samuel, the prophet, came to Saul the king, and Saul said, Blessed be you to the Lord. What, what fake piety. I'm in the middle of rebelling against God, but when God's man shows up, oh, bless you, bless you in the Lord, bless you in the Lord. All just shallow and fake. I, I remember, when I, when I read this, sometimes I think about this, Wendy may remember this. Years ago, in another church we were serving, we had a guest preacher in one Sunday. Um, and I was visiting with him. I didn't know him the first time I'd ever met him. Um, but occasionally you have those people that come across like, like a car salesman. No offense if you sell cars. But I remember he was talking to me just on and on. He said, you know, your wife, your wife is such a blessing. And I wanted to say, what's her name? You've never met her. Don't tell me my wife is a blessing if you don't even know her name. Saul shows up. Samuel, when he gets there, he's like, oh, bless you, Saul. Bless you in the Lord. I have performed all the commandments of the Lord. That is a lie. That is lie number one. You think you can pull it over on the man of God. Paul, I mean, Saul is lying to cover up his sin. Verse 14. After Saul says, I've, I've kept all the commandments, Samuel says in verse 14, then what's the bleeding of sheep and the, the oxen I hear in my ears. This is pure sarcasm, right? I mean, this is the prophet of sarcasm speaking up. You say you've killed them all. I still hear them. Saul, so we have a miracle happening. This is a miracle. The dead animals are still talking. Explain that to me, king. Samuel would so fit in my extended family who believes sarcasm is a spiritual gift. This is your four-year-old, teeth all black, saying, I did not eat the Oreos. And you're like, well, then we need to get to the dentist because your teeth are rotting out. What are the animals I hear if you kept the commandment? Which leads to lie number two in verse 15. We brought them back to sacrifice to the Lord your God. Lie number one, we killed them all. But if you catch us in lie number one, lie number two is we brought him back as an offering to God. Which, by the way, would still be self-serving. 
If you're familiar enough with some of the Old Testament sacrifices, this would probably have been a Thanksgiving sacrifice, a Thanksgiving offering brought back because of the victory in battle. And the Thanksgiving offerings, the large portion of those were given back to the people to eat at a meal. So God, we brought the fatted calves and the great, I mean the prime beef to, to give as an offering knowing that we get to participate in that. Lie upon lie upon lie to Samuel. If you can't lie, you can't cover up your sin. You end up being the king who turned his back on God because you have this elevated view of yourself and you think you get to overrule God, and if anybody calls you out on it, you just lie and cover it up. We killed them all. No, you didn't. Okay, we brought them back for sacrifice. No, you didn't. No, you didn't. Can I just remind you that lying for all of us is a gateway sin? It's a gateway sin. And by that, I mean it opens the door to other sins. If I know I will never lie, I'm less likely to commit other sins because if you ask me about it, I just have to tell you. Honesty is a restraint on other sins. If you absolutely cannot lie, you get pulled over by the police officer, and he's like, um, were you kind of speeding coming around that hill? You're like, 88. 88, and I don't have insurance, and my left blinker doesn't work. Just, I cannot cover it up. But our ability to cover up and lie is what opens the door for us to do other sins. Saul has this elevated view of himself. He no longer has to obey God, and if any godly person asks... I just lie and cover it up. And because of that, the prophet no longer trusts the king. We have a problem in Israel. The king is lying to the prophet, and the prophet no longer trusts the king. After lying, the third one and final step in turning your back on God, Saul had an elevated view of himself. Saul covered up his sin. And thirdly, Saul blamed others. Saul blamed others. Look at verse 15. Look at how he says this. Verse 14, the sarcasm of Samuel. How do I still hear these animals? Verse 15, they, Saul said, they have brought them from the Amalekites. For the people spared the sheep and the oxen. And the rest, we, now he includes himself, we devoted to destruction. They spared, they brought back, we devoted to destruction. He's separating himself and blaming them. He does it again in verse 20. Look at verse 20. Same thing, same pattern. Saul said to Samuel, I have obeyed the voice of the Lord. That's a lie. I have gone on the mission which the Lord has sent me. I have brought Agag, the king of Amalek, and I have devoted the Amalekites to destruction. Verse 21, but the people, you know those people, Samuel, the people took of the spoil and the sheep and the oxen and the best of the things devoted to destruction. The people did it, not me. Not me. Saul, I thought you were king. Can you not tell them no? Can you not tell them I'm out on this? You do it. And, and I'm, I'm going to tell Samuel myself. 
Samuel told us what God wanted us to do. If you guys won't do it, if I can't make you do it as king, I will call you out on it. Instead, he's like, you know what? They all brought them back. They all couldn't bring themselves to kill the best of the best and to kill King Agag. But he's just like, it's they, they, the people, the people, they did it. Guys, we're well on the road to turning our back on God when we repeatedly use excuses to justify our sin and blame other people. And and Saul gives us a blueprint on how to do it. Saul's not the first man to blame other people for his sin. You remember who the first man was who did it? This started early. God, the woman you gave me. The people. It's not me, it's the people. It's the people around me. Adam jumped on this one early. Saul did it. We do it. Listen, church, the king who turned his back on God, verse 11, had at least these three mistakes coming together in his life. They merged together. An elevated view of himself. He lacked the integrity to be honest so he could lie and cover it up. And then he justified his sin by blaming it on others. We still do those same three things. Elevated view of himself. I need monuments. I'm obsessed with my own honor. And I assume I have the right to overrule God. God says, don't do that. And we do it. God says, I want you doing this. And we don't do it. He lacked the integrity to be honest. So he could lie to cover up his sin. He'd look right in the man of God's eyes and lie to him. And then he justified it by blaming others. It's not my fault. I can make excuses. It's got to be her fault. It's got to be his fault. It's got to be the people's fault. The people were guilty. Please don't misunderstand me. The rest of Israel were guilty. But it didn't lessen Saul's guilt. He could try to blame them, but it doesn't work. They're guilty for their sin. Paul can't, I mean, Saul can't blame them for his own sin. Those are, are three things that, that when they come together are a very dangerous combination, church. When you see those things begin to creep into your life, you're just becoming a little too important, and you realize you'll lie to cover things up, and when you're really in a bind, you just pass the buck to other people and you blame them. When those three come together in combination in a person's life, you end up with chapter 15 in 1 Samuel and a king who turned back and no longer followed the Lord. God gives us stories like this for our instruction. So I'm saying by his grace and in his power, fight these three things. Fight these three things. Remember who you are. You're not God. Don't let idolatry slip in. Be honest. Call it like it is. Don't try to cover it up. And don't pass the responsibility for your sin onto anybody else. As I read through the rest of 1 Samuel and 2 Samuel, I don't think Saul was ever visited by Samuel again. I don't think Samuel ever went and took the initiative to see Saul again after this. I mean, that's the way, that's the way verse, uh, chapter 15 ends. Verse 35, Samuel did not see Saul again until the day of his death. 
Saul tried to go visit Samuel, Samuel never took the initiative to go see the king again. Saul actually served about another 15 years as king. That's a long time for God to say, your dynasty is going to be taken from you and your kingdom is going to be taken from you, ripped apart just like you ripped Samuel's garment. And then it took 15 years for it to happen. For those 15 years, Saul's just going through the motions of being king because God's presence has left, God's power has left, God's leadership has left, God's blessing has left. He's just going through the motions of being God's king, and he's not. It's kind of one of those reminders to me, church, on the, on the patience and trusting God's timing. David knows he's supposed to be the next king, and for 15 years, this puppet king, this hollow king is still on the throne trying to do things without God's power, and David just has to keep waiting. I mean, this story, now when I think about it, it's God had promised all the way back in Deuteronomy 25 that the Amalekites would pay for how they treated Israel coming out of Egypt, and it's been hundreds of years, and just now they're about to pay. God doesn't always run on our schedule, does he? I mean, it's not always just right when we want it, but God, even if it's slow, does keep his promises. God did not want Saul's empty sacrifices. If I had wanted them as sacrifices on the altar, I wouldn't have said, slaughter them in the field. I wanted them slaughtered in the field. You don't have to understand why God wants things done a certain way. As long as he's made it clear, we do it whether we understand or not. And I think that's one of the central points of this chapter. When you get to verse 22, and Samuel the prophet says, to obey is better than sacrifice. God does not want our sacrifices without our obedience. They're worthless. Disobedient people bringing a sacrifice does not impress God. So I would rather have your obedience and no sacrifices than sacrifices and no obedience. I want to I want to end this morning, if you'd let me, on a positive note. And you may think, is there anything positive in this chapter? Well, having an elevated view of ourselves, which is idolatry, is not positive. Lying and having a lack of integrity, and we use that line to cover up our sin, is not positive. And blaming others for our own mistakes is not positive. So, Doug, what is positive in 1 Samuel 15? What would God want for our instruction from these stories of old? Let me just end quickly by telling you Samuel is positive. I want to be Samuel. I I pray that God would put men and women in my life who are friends like Samuel. Let me just highlight Samuel for just a second. In verse 10, God has come to Samuel and said, I'm done with Saul. He's not performed my commandments. And Samuel was angry. It bothered him, and he cried out to the Lord all night. God came to Samuel and said, listen, um, things are not going to go well for Saul. 
So it's going to be bad for Saul, and for a while it's going to be bad for the nation, which means it's also going to be bad for the army. I've rejected the king. This is, we're starting a bad chapter. And what does Samuel do when he finds out? He prays all night long. I need people in my life that when things are not going well for Doug, they're like, I'm praying for you, and I'm not talking about 30 seconds. If I have to spend all night, I think Samuel spent all night praying for Saul, and at the end of the night, God's like, um, thank you for your prayers. I've still rejected him. Still rejected him, but did not, it did not keep Samuel from praying all night long for his king and all night long for his nation. You, you need a Samuel in your life. When you start to peel off and go the wrong direction and turn your back on God, you need somebody who says, I will get on my knees on your behalf and pray all night long if I have to. I, I need that in my life. I want to be that for other people. So he prayed all night long. Verse 12, after he's prayed all night long, Samuel rose early to meet Saul in the morning. He went after Saul. So first he prayed all night long. Second, he took the initiative and went looking for Saul. I need people who won't let me turn away from God without taking the initiative to come look for me. I may not be able to talk you back, Doug, but you're not walking away without me trying. Saul is leaving God, and Samuel's like, you'll have to walk through me to do it. I'm coming. I'm going to tell you the truth. I'm going to see if it does any good. I'll pray all night for you, and I'll get up early the next morning, and I will track you down. I will find you. I have bad news, but I still have news. I need people who pray all night long, get up early the next morning, and come find me wherever I am and say, thus saith the Lord. This is what God says. Samuel's such a bright spot. Verse 15. Saul, still making excuses. They, the people, brought these things from the Amalekites. The people spared. The people did this. Verse 16, Samuel said to him, stop. Just stop. I need somebody who will pray all night long. I'll need somebody who will take the initiative to come look for me when I'm wandering off. And I need somebody that will say, Doug, stop digging. Stop digging. It's only getting worse. He's just throwing out excuses and throwing out other people to blame. And Samuel finally says, just quit. Quit talking. Stop with the excuses. Stop with the blaming. Stop with the justifying. you got to stop this. You guys realize we desperately need people who love us enough to pray all night, take the initiative, and when they come and talk to us, they're like, you you got to cut this out. This is not good for you. This is not good for your family. This is not good for the nation. This is not good for our church. This is not good. Stop. I mean, just cut right to the chase. Doug, stop living like this. This is, this is a bad choice. This road is a dead end. Stop. We need people to tell us when sin in our life has to end. And the final thing I'll say about Samuel comes at the very end when he asked them to bring Agag to him, verses 32 and 33. He says, by the way, where's the king that was supposed to be killed out on the battlefield? Get him here and bring me a sword because I'll do what nobody else will do. God said to kill him. He's still breathing. That's not good. If God said to kill him and he's still breathing, that's not good. 
bring me the king and bring me a sword. The warrior king wouldn't do it, so the prophet had to. The prophet had to take the sword and kill Agag. I need men and women in my life who have the courage to obey God when nobody else is obeying God. None of the other soldiers had killed Agag. The king hadn't killed Agag. The general had not killed Agag. So the prophet, the preacher, the pastor says, all right, not only will I pray for you all night, not only will I take the initiative to come and find you, not only will I tell you to stop and cut it out, I'll do what nobody else is willing to do. Obey God when everybody else is disobeying. Bring me a sword. Let's get this done. That had to be kind of an odd sight, right? I mean, he's, he's, the, he's the prophet. He's the man of God. This is Billy Graham saying, bring me a sword. Bring me a sword. I need to hack Agag to pieces because I'm going to obey God even when nobody else will. I need men. I want to be this for other people. I want to obey God if nobody else is in your life. If you're like, nobody else is obeying God, I want you to both say, I think Doug's still trying. Samuel's still trying. We, we, you know, we need Samuels in our life. Let me tell you why. Because there are times in your life, now this isn't one of them. It was crystal clear to Saul what he was supposed to do. Crystal clear. But there are times in our life when trying to decide exactly what's right to do is, is tough. I mean, it's, it's not spelled out like slaughter them all. And so you're trying to make decisions about right and wrong, moral, immoral, and it's, it, in God's mind it's black and white, but in our fallen world it seems gray. We're trying to sort it out. And God has graciously at times given me people like this where I'm like, if I can't decide what to do, I'm just going to think through what he would do and try to do what he would do. Because that man in my life has walked with God for years, and I've watched him make the right decision over and over again. So if I can't figure out what to do, I'm just going to do what I think Samuel would do if he were in my place in my world. What would Samuel do here? And if I'll do what Samuel will do, I probably won't miss the mark very far. We, we need models like that. That's why Paul tells Timothy, hey, imitate me. You know my pattern of life. Do what I do. If you can't figure it out, I mean, I, I do what Christ did, but hopefully I'm, a, I'm imitating Christ enough. If you can't figure out what Christ would do, just do what Paul would do. We need to strive to be this in the lives of brothers and sisters. I'll pray for you all night if I need to. I'll come take the initiative and track you down so I can talk to you. I'll be to the point and say, cut it out. Stop. This isn't working. Just stop. And then when nobody else is obeying God in your life, I'll at least be one person, I pray, who will do what nobody else will do, and that is obey God. And I need those things in my life. Samuel is the bright spot. Saul's turning his back on God. Elevated view of himself, making excuses, blaming other people. Samuel's like, I'll come looking, I'll keep praying, I'll tell you to stop, and I'll do what nobody else will do. I'll obey God, even when it's hard. We have a choice sometimes. Do we want our lives to look like Saul, or do we want our lives to look like Samuel? You know, um, Saul disobeyed and did not kill all the Amalekites, including their king. So Samuel took a run at it and killed Agag, but they still did not kill all the Amalekites. So you get a few chapters later in Samuel, and David is having all kinds of trouble with the Amalekites that he should not be having because they should have been killed. 
And just to show you how long this goes, when you get to the book of Esther, which is hundreds of years from here, the man who comes up with the plan to exterminate the Jews in the book of Esther is a descendant of the Amalekites. He's a descendant of King Agag. I mean, they're still haunting the Israelites hundreds of years into the future because in 1 Samuel 15, Saul had an elevated view of himself, lied to cover up his sin, and blamed other people. I mean, it ripples through the Old Testament. And so Esther is facing the extermination of his people because of one of King Agag's descendants, who wasn't destroyed, is still after God's people, the Israelites. There's, there's lots of other interesting issues, I think, in 1 Samuel 15. There are people who struggle with God giving this kind of command to kill all the women and children and babies and infants and all the animals. How does God do that? It's interesting to me that people struggle with those kinds of commands to destroy everybody, mainly because it's, it's the instrument God uses to do it. He's going to use Israel to do it when people don't have a big problem with God doing that when he did it to Sodom and Gomorrah, right? I mean, people don't seem to complain as much about that. God killed all the children and infants and babies and women and children in Sodom and Gomorrah. But because he seems to have used nature, we don't have a problem with it. If he uses people, we have a problem with it. Or they don't have a problem with the flood. He destroyed all the women and children and infants and babies in the flood, and no big scream, no big outcry, because he used a flood. He didn't use people. It, it's the same God doing it. He just chooses a different agent to do it. But if he's the creator, he has the right to. If the sin of the Amalekites had reached the place where they had to be dealt with, God can do it with a flood, or he can do it like he did Sodom and Gomorrah, or he can do it through the army of Israel. That's your call when you're God, right? That's your call when you're God. You can do with your creation whatever you want if you're the creator. Would you take a minute and just think through these three things that came together in Saul's life that led him down a path he probably would have thought he would never go down? And just ask God, God, is, is this line slipping into my life where I cover up what I'm doing and it lets me keep doing it? Have I been guilty of blaming others rather than taking my own responsibility? And do I have an elevated view of myself that puts me in a position that we would call idolatry where I begin to make these decisions, God, rather than you? Would you pray through those things, and then if you get a chance, say, God, make me a Samuel in people's life. Make me a Samuel in people's lives. If you're here this morning and, and you don't know Christ, this all begins with Christ. It all begins with Christ. He's the one that can change and make people who live like Saul into people who live like Samuel. It's Christ who does that, and I would love to visit with you about that. But for God's people today, this story was given for our instruction, and I pray today highlighting it has been that for you. God, I thank you for stories in the Old Testament that are they're not just stories. They're certainly not fiction. They're stories with a purpose. We must fight sin in our lives. We must, as the passage we read from Colossians 3, put off the old and put on the new. And we won't do that if we're thinking and acting and living like Saul. It opens the door for us to turn our back on you. So God, make us aware of these three warning signs. Make us aware of these three steps that move us toward living like Saul. And then... By your grace, 
Would you take the example of Samuel and make us men and women like him? In Christ's name, amen. 